Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 70. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Karen LeBeau. Karen is a science teacher at Shepherd Hill Regional High School in Dudley, Massachusetts. In addition to her work in the classroom, Karen is heavily involved in science fairs in Massachusetts. She is the events manager of the Massachusetts Science and Engineering Fair and co-chair of the MSEF Middle School Fair. She will also oversee the administrative tasks for the high school science fair at MIT and the annual Massachusetts delegation of students and teacher chaperones that are selected to participate in the International Science and Engineering Fair, ICEF. Before joining Shepherd Hill, Karen served as interim director of the Regional Science Resource Center at UMass Medical School. And you can follow Karen on Twitter at Mrs. LeBeau SH. Welcome, Karen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you again. We saw each other back in March at uh, the Massachusetts Biology Teacher Conference. Yes, yes. It had been quite a few years after our meetings at um, for AP Biology Network. Yeah, yeah, you were... I've made several elliptical uh, references to that in my show over the last few years that like there used to be this group of bio teachers that got together and talked to AB biology. And then that sort of disappeared because a few people have mentioned to me how they'd like to have a, a meeting like that. And I was like, I was once part of a meeting like that. Yes. That'd um, be nice to try and start that up again. <laughs> yeah. And I think there, there are some uh, conversations happening, at least within, I started going to the AP reading last year. And I know a couple of other readers who have started talking about trying to get something going, you know, a couple times a year, maybe modeled after what they do down in Texas of getting teachers to come together and, and talk uh, a few times a year about AP. Excellent. So, yeah, so we've actually known each other for a long time, but before you were a fellow teacher, uh, it's, <laughs> it was it was funny to see you stand up and I was like, oh, Karen, I know Karen when she was standing up at the, the biology teacher conference to talk about science fair. So I know we'll get in quite into that quite a bit uh, as we get into our conversations. Mm, it was sort of a career change for me, I guess you could say. So it's been four years that I've been teaching now. Yeah, so this this is the natural place I like to start all my conversations, which is how did you become a science teacher? And unlike almost every other guest I've ever had, where I knew you in a completely different role, and then you switched into science teacher, what led you to switching into the classroom? What led you from going from being really a, a bench scientist and an outreach person into being a classroom teacher? Yes, definitely. So it's kind of a funny story of how I became a teacher. Um, it's always been something in the back of my head that I would have liked to have done, um, but it was basically sort of a career change. Um, when I was at the Regional Science Resource Center, they unfortunately had closed it down, so I didn't have a job anymore. Mm. And so it was right at summertime, so I took the summer off. I had My son was one and a half at the time and kind of just took the summer to think about what I wanted to do. And um, the high school in my town where I lived had a maternity position. Someone was going on maternity leave and they needed a biology teacher for three months. So I said, you know what, why don't I just sign up for this? You know, it's going to be a little bit. And she ended up taking the whole year off. And so I was there for the whole year until actually middle of May, I had my second son. And so the <laughs> teacher I was in for came back from her maternity leave to just cover the last few weeks. 
And then, so unfortunately, she ended up coming back for the next year. But another biology teacher in the school decided to take um, a two-year leave. So I was there for two more years. And these were all extended sub-positions. But I finally Mm. got hired full-time this year. So that was exciting. (laughs) No more extended leaves. (laughs) Yeah, so for three years you were a you were a like a, a long term sub. Yep, a long term sub. So, oh, wow, that's tough. Yeah. So, so were you working on your certification as you were be- taking these long term sub gigs? Yes. Yeah, so I already um, was certified. I did have to, I was certified um, for general science five through eight. So I did have to take the teacher's test. Mm. So I have that, and now I'm going through a master's program right now to get my to go to the next license and my master's. I have a master's, but it's an MBA. So I want to get the master's in education now. So more work. Yeah. The, the rules in Massachusetts are so crazy in terms of like what types of degrees you have to have. And I feel like they keep changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like, you know, maybe you know, 10, 12 years ago, if you had an MBA, but you had taken enough classes else, elsewhere, it would probably have been okay. Yeah. Uh, but you probably need it either in biology or in education. Yes. So I'm going to go the education route and um, yeah. do a licensure program as I go through with the master's. So so I think of you You were a sub, but it was a, a unique subbing situation because you were a sub, but with your own classes. Did you, do you have the feeling like you, did the kids view you like a sub or did you feel like you were just like a new teacher in those positions? I was basically a teacher. I don't even think they really even knew that I was a sub. <laughs> <laughs> so they viewed me as a teacher for the last three years. Yeah. I was, I, that, this puts a lot of, uh, a lot of context into it because I was looking things up and I was like, I know she's been there. I thought she was at Shepherd Hill all of this time, Mm -hmm. but there was like an announcement at the beginning of the year that you were like a new faculty there. And I was like, I could have sworn she had been there for, for several years, but um, you're now officially there. I'm official. I was introduced as a new faculty member every year for the last (laughs) four years. It was sort of a running joke. (laughs) Yeah. I have a I have a colleague who similar deal with his certification. He had left the state and had come back, and it wasn't that he was a long term sub, but every year he was told that like next year you'll get your your new certification, and the rules kept changing, and then have to refile paperwork, and so he like didn't get professional status mm-hmm. for like five or six years because you know we don't have tenure but we have this professional status but you have to have all these boxes checked yes in order in order to be given at least in our district and um so like he had been at the school for like six years before he got professional status because they kept on changing the rules on him about what the little criteria were and getting the right paperwork in and getting the licensing there so it was a it was a running joke he's like yeah but I'm a physics teacher you know (laughs) I'm not going anywhere so exactly and I was you know I had the observations and everything in teach point so it was it was Mm -hmm. all official All right. So that, I mean, it's interesting that you're, you're in this position now. And so you feel like you're (laughs) a full team. So what are you teaching now that you're like an official teacher? What what is it? So um, I have, um, for the first few years, it was just biology and a forensics class here and there. But recently our school started the um, project lead the way biomedical science pathway program. Mm -hmm. Um, So last year I took on principles of biomedical science and this year um, the human body systems through Project Lead the Way. And I really like it because it kind of ties back to a lot of the lab work I used to do. Um, So I can kind of use that as an example to talk with the students about what it is like to work in a real lab and how the labs, 
you know, you actually need them when you're going to go into college or a degree. Because a lot of these students who take these classes want to go into either nursing or a biomedical um, pathway. So those are classes. Yeah. So tell me about Project Lead the Way. I've heard of, I've heard it mentioned a lot of different places, but it's not something I've ever experienced as a teacher. Mm-hmm. What is involved with being involved with Project Lead the Way? So yes. So you have to go to trainings to kind of be, um, you know, train the teacher um, to teach. And like, for instance, in our principles of biomedical science class, they're working on a case study of how this Anna Garcia died. We start with the crime scene and they have to analyze the crime scene. And, um, we find out she has lots of problems, diabetes, sickle cell disease, heart problems. So each unit, we're learning something about um, the human body and how did it tie back to how she died. So we're almost ready to solve the case. And last year, what we did for a fun project after the seniors left was we had some students design different endings of how she died instead of, you know, because students can sometimes Google you know, how did Anna Garcia die? Um, so we changed it up this year, which I think we kind of made it more of a murder mystery almost. So I think they'll enjoy that. So what are the benefits of being in Project Lead the Way as opposed to I just teach an anatomy and physiology class? Mm-hmm. Like, they, obviously, it's it's rigorous from a training standpoint. You have to go and get specific training for this. So what are the benefits maybe for you or for the students of being connected to this larger initiative of Project Lead the Way? Yeah, so there's lots of um, pathways the students can take. There's also some schools offer graduate credit for these courses. So we're still looking into that since we're fairly new with it. But it's different a different type of classroom. You know, it's not me giving, you know, notes out on the board or following the PowerPoint. They actually log into a website every day. Um, They have computers for the class and log in and we're following the steps from Project Lead the Way for the different classes and different units. So it's kind of they're following the steps to solve the crime or do the labs. So it's very different than, you know, my traditional teaching with my biology class compared to this class. So it provides you a lot of structure and resources mm-hmm. to, to help build the curriculum? Yes, exactly. I'll definitely put in some notes uh, or some links to Project Lead the Way so people can read a little bit more about it. Because I, I don't know that it's a huge thing in Massachusetts or mm-hmm. I, uh, not something I've seen a lot of, but I've mm-hmm. heard of it from teachers in other places. You know, their engineering project, it's very popular in the like elementary and middle school. I think mm-hmm. when we started the biomedical classes last year, I think there was only other two maybe high schools who had the biomedical science um, pathway. and in the last year, a lot more schools have joined on um, with this because there's um, so the first class you take is principles of biomedical science. And then the next year you have to add the next class, which is human body systems. And then the third year you add um, medical interventions. And then the last year, the fourth year is a um, capstone class called biomedical innovations. So there's different classes and we start, you know, how you start anything we started small you know our first year and now we kind of tweaked it to know this pbs class is more for freshmen and sophomores and then if they take it freshman year they can you know double up on their sciences to um, finish all four courses which is great so it sounds it does does sound like a pathway though that that students need to get into early on Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their electives yes exactly and um it's great. Like some of the medical interventions, that's the next class we're going to be offering next year. I mean, these are labs that I did when I was working in a lab, you know, or in yeah. college. So it's great that it's giving these kids these hands-on skills where they can, you know, learn how to use gel electrophoresis, PCR, um, ELISA is another one, um, a lot of bacterial labs. And back in high school, 
I was just starting with gel. I just learned gel electrophoresis. I didn't really know anything else back then. So it's really giving kids those tools when they get to college or the real world. Yeah, it sounds like a, a Tuesday to me. Um, to me, <laughs> you know, no. you know how I am with labs. So. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> that still impresses me. All the labs you guys do. <laughs> yeah, but it, you're right. I do, I do think that. Um, you know, one of the things that sometimes I, I have conversations with people and they're like, oh, how did you think of this? Or how do you think of that? And I do think that sometimes when you, you don't have much of a filter in terms of what you dive into, which I think is probably my strength. Like, like I never say, oh no, we can't possibly do that lab. I kind of more have a, let's figure out how to get this lab done mindset. Mm -hmm. That's just sort of how I go. I do think that because I work in a very big building and we do have a lot of resources and I work with a lot of really strong colleagues and I have a lot of resources at my disposal, um, it's very easy for me to make those things accessible to my students. But I do realize that if you're in a smaller school or a school that may not have as many resources, having a pathway like this Project Lead the Way seems like it's a great way of opening up some space that might not have existed in your traditional classroom. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we, we've alluded to it a few times because before you were teaching, you did do a fair amount of STEM outreach. As I said, that's how we got to, to mm -hmm. know each other. And I, I know so little about, even though I went to the Regional Science Resource Center um, at UMass Medical School with Brian, it was literally Brian's like, oh, I go to these meetings. Come with me to these meetings. And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. So how did you transition? We're going to go back in time a little bit. How did you transition? Because you were a bench, you worked at a bench at UMass. You you did lab work. Uh, you had papers that you were a part of. Yeah. How did you transition from being a bench scientist to having that science outreach focus um, when you were at UMass Medical Center? Sure, definitely. Um, so actually, my love of science actually got started from my high school biology teacher. Um, he was the one who kind of opened the doors for me learning about biotechnology and gel electrophoresis. And he introduced me to Sandy Mayrand. I'm sure you remember her mm -hmm. from the Regional Science Resource Center. She started it, um, and it was first at the Worcester Foundation for Biomedical Research. And then the Worcester Found Foundation merged with UMass Med. And so he had a contact with Sandy. And from there, I started, um, I went to college in Worcester at Assumption College, and I was able to intern in college throughout my whole four years of college at the RSRC. Um, so that's kind of where my, you know, outreach started, mm -hmm. learning about all the different events we did. We, you know, back then we worked on the science fair. We worked heavily with um, Worcester Public Schools. We had um, a woman in science event and a men in STEM event where we had the Worcester middle school kids go to a day to meet different STEM people. They went to different workshops to learn about different careers, and we had a lunch and a speaker for them. So that was kind of my first array into outreach. And then once I graduated, actually, Sandy helped me get my first job at UMass. Um, a friend of hers worked in a lab, and there was a new lab starting. And so that's how I got into working, being a research tech, and I worked on C. elegans. Mm -hmm. Never in my life would think I would ever work with a tiny microscopic worm, mm -hmm. um, but it was fun. I loved it. And so I did that for about, I think, about three years, but honestly, I started to get a little bored with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many saligans could I look at each day? And it was a lot heavy into microscope work. And then at that time, a job just happened to open with Sandy, who wanted to do a science coordinator position. And that's when they had a lab at our building. So that's where I first got into it. The labs, actually, um, Brian used to bring his kids to our lab to do some of your AP biology labs. Mm -hmm. And that's where 
it just kind of started. So I used to run all the labs there for kids. We had a kind of a cookbook of labs we used to do, like extract DNA from an onion or strawberry, um, a crime scene, or the AP bio labs like transformation and gel electrophoresis. Yeah. And so this is probably, gosh, about what, a decade ago or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. So I think in terms of the the timing and, and thinking like what's in the classroom today versus what was there 10 years ago and thinking about what we had in our school, there was just very, we had very little materials to, to run gels or, or to do that sort of thing. So to have a place where you could, you know, pile kids in a bus and, and go in, um, it was a great resource for us. And I can think of even more for the kids in like the Worcester City schools or the schools around Worcester, which are, I know now building up that biotech, but even at that time would have had even less access to, to those materials. That was probably a great, a great opportunity yeah. for them. And even the school that I'm at now used to bring their kids to come do the, the AP bio lab. So it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So you do this for a few years and then when did the AP bio teacher group sort of work out of that? I, I don't really know the origins of how you became okay. in charge of that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think when I had started there, it was already going on. Oh, okay. So I think I moved in, yeah, 2008, I think I started at the um, RSRC. And I think the AP bio meetings were already happening. We also had an AP chemistry group and an AP calculus group. So like I said, it was a great place. I think we met four times a year for just everyone to kind of get together and share tricks and labs. A lot of people got great resources out of those meetings. So, yeah. So, and then it went on till I think, um, yeah, 2000, I'm already messing up my dates, how long I've been gone. (laughs) (laughs) 2000, when was my son born? 13. So yeah, 2014 or 15. Yeah. I had it as 14 or 15 in my head because I felt like it was like three or four years that I had been teaching AP. And Mm -hmm. so the last couple of meetings, it was like, meeting got canceled last minute or I'd show up and there'd be one other person there or. Yeah. It started to dwindle down towards the end. I think people were just, everyone was busy. Yeah. And it was funny because the first, I went to a couple of meetings at the beginning and it was right at the change of the AP. So we did the transition. And so right before the transition and right after the transition in curriculum, there were like, the room was like full, you know, every seat around this big table that could seat a dozen. And then after about two years after the change, it kind of dwindled down to, you know, four or five people showing up to those meetings. So, And these people used to come from far. I remember we used to have like East Longmeadow, um, you know, people were, would travel to, to meet with the teachers, which was great. Yeah. So I, I've been, as I said, I've been talking to a few other teachers who have been looking into, you know, getting something similar set up, um, maybe coming up with like a you know, a Saturday, a couple times a year where, you know, we'd find a place and people could come in and and do some resource sharing and, and maybe have a little bit of professional development. We'll have some readers go over some questions with people, maybe do some resource sharing, um, that sort of thing a couple of times a year because there are models of groups around the country who are doing something like that. And there's definitely a thirst for it, but you're right. Having it scheduled, I think for us, our downfall was having it, it was like always in the afternoon. It was like a Mm-hmm. When, After school. Yeah, yeah, it was like a Wednesday, Thursday. And for me, it wasn't a big deal because I was I live in Worcester County. So for me, I was coming back <laughs> closer yeah. to home. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was like a little bit of a diversion. I would drive most of the way home, take a little turn off. And it was literally only like 15 minutes out of my way on the way home. Uh, but I know for a lot of people, it was, you know, either the opposite way, like they were coming West before going back out of Boston or, you know, coming East before going out West or that sort of thing. It, it became a, I think, logistical challenge. So um, yeah, hopefully we can get something like that started again. I know that would be great. I think it's, it's 
would be helpful to everybody. Yeah, uh, particularly as I've been working with some new teachers in, I've been mentoring some of the people through our AP Bio teacher community on Facebook, and I've been working with a handful of new teachers. I think that's the people who it's most needed for. Mm -hmm. There's, as I said, there's two groups I feel like who need a community like that the most, the new teachers. um, And then also the teachers who are like, you are the AP teacher in your building. And like, that's it. You're the only one. And yeah. and you it can be isolating if you're the only bio teacher or the only AP bio teacher and you don't have people to bounce ideas off of. I feel like that's why those type of communities were super helpful. Especially if it's your first year teaching and this whole new curriculum yeah. can definitely be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so um, I want to start shifting over to talking about the other thing that I think, um, and it's actually the thing you were talking about at the Massachusetts Biology Teacher Conference that we were at, uh, was about science fairs and independent research. But before we get into science fairs, I'm going to pitch a scenario that happened to me like the week before we went into our April break. Um, I have a student who I know who actually wasn't my student, but I know her through an extracurricular and I know the family. And she came to me and she's like, I want to do some independent research next year. And, and so she came to me and she's really excited about doing science. She at one point took, you know, we mentioned, we've mentioned Brian Dempsey a few times. He runs a sort of a, a intro principles to scientific research thing over the summer. And she had taken that even before she came to high school, but she really wants to do sort of her own independent research project. And so I, we have that population that's here that come and ask, but I'm curious, how do you draw students into engaging into independent research? Because I know you've been working with both middle school and high school students. How do you draw kids in, or do you just have kids who come to you like I just had a kid come to me who want to do who want to do it, and you just need to point them in the right direction? So it's a mix of both. Um, I don't. I work on the middle school. I chair the Worcester Regional Middle School Committee, mm-hmm. but that was kind of just a lot of this I took from my old job mm-hmm. um, at UMass. So I kind of just, I couldn't give it up. My friend Lisa and I, you know, run it together and I feel bad if I left her. So, <laughs> um, but I was able to get the middle school um, science fair started in R2. I'm a regional town. So both in Dudley and in Charlton, which is great. Um, so I guess in response to your question, you know, how do I get the students? So I have some students who are just interested in doing it. And I mean, I'm not starting a huge science fair. We're starting very small, you know, for the first few years, just to kind of get off the ground. And we also, with this new, like, biomedical project lead the way program we have, we offer these um, certificate programs in our school. So it's kind of like if you participate and do the stuff, you get a stole at um, graduation. I think those are what they call that go around your neck. Mm -hmm. And you get that and kind of like a certificate and you can put it on your resume and college applications. And so with that, one of the conditions of being in this program is to do the science fair. So that's how I'm kind of just starting small to get students involved. We also have a um, STEM certificate program in our school. And one of the requirements of that is to do the science fair. So like I said, I'm starting very small and it's grown each year. My first year, I didn't have anybody who went to the regional or state fair. The next year I had students go to the regional fair and the state fair. And again, this year I have had students go to the regional and they're going to go to the state fair in May at MIT. So I'm just starting very small, but it's growing each year, which is great. And um, our AP biology teacher also added an aspect to his class to do a research project. So I got some more students that way to participate from his AP biology class. 
So you've given given some uh, incentives for students to, yeah. to look at this as a pathway. So mm-hmm. you're not doing the, I, I call it the Lexington model just because that's the model I think of from around Massachusetts, the Lexington model, which is you are in honor science, you do a science fair project, you are, everybody does a science fair project. That is not your model. Yours is very much a, an opt-in if you're, this is something that might interest you. Yes. And I know a lot of schools around do that. You know, you take this class, you have to do that project. So no, I'm not at that level yet. Possibly when we offer maybe that fourth year class of Project Lead the Way, because part of that is they have to do a research project. I might transition into, you know, kind of a research um, methods class. And, you know, every student who takes that class has to do a science fair, but that's still two, two years down the road to think about. But I'm not that model where, you know, if you take my biology class, you have to do the project. Yeah. And, and that, that would make sense. You described it as a capstone project and that's very much a capstone kind of thing to do. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I had some girls who went to the regional fair this year and, you know, they did good. But once they saw all the other projects from around, they're like, okay, we really need to, you know, sit down, let's start earlier next year. And so I think they were, you know, excited and realized, okay, we really have to buckle down and get started earlier, do more research. Um, They saw some of the boards and were like, okay, we know what we're going to do for next year. Yeah. I So I, when I had the student come to me and I was like, well, what are you sort of interested in? The things that she threw out to me were like, you know, she was interested in stem cells and she's interested in cancer. And I think that's sort of a, a natural place where this is a student who's very excited, but very inexperienced. What is your process for helping? Like you get these excited kids who come to you and they're like, I want to do a science fair. What do you give them as sort of their first steps towards doing this? How do you, how do you help them sort of pick an area or uh, a pathway to to start to getting into accessing doing their own independent work when their ideas are so big and bold to start mm-hmm. and maybe not as accessible to you in a school to do yeah, stem exactly. cell research. Yeah, I'm not going to do stem cell research at school. That's what, so a lot of, um, I have some friends who are teachers and so they have connections like at UMass Medical School or um, AbbV, I think someone was doing a project there. So if you know someone to get in and work on your project there, that's great, but that's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. No one, a lot of people don't have those resources. So, you know, I, I had a student who started really big and I'm like, okay, well, we have to kind of think, bring it down a little bit. And she ended up picking something else. She looked at the antimicrobial effect of silver mm-hmm. and to see, you know, if that would be better used to help kill bacteria. And we did see, and it worked, but it was something we were able to do in school as opposed to, you know, trying to find a lab to work in, which is hard for people. So, you know, like this girl, she had a lot of different ideas and a lot of them maybe we couldn't do at school because we didn't have the resources. So I had her do some more background research, mm-hmm. but I tell them to find something that interests them. Mm. And I think if they're interested in the topic, they're going to pursue it. They're going to really be vested in it to do that research. And then we can come up with the steps of how we want to do this lab. How are we going to make it all work? Um, you know, what's the experiment going to be? What are your variables? And from there, we were able to kind of narrow down her topics. And it ended up being a lab we could do at school. We have the materials. And another one, they another group um, looked at 
you know, cell phone use and the emotional well-being of students. And so that was something that was a topic they liked because everyone loves their phones, as you know. (laughs) And so um, they were able to, you know, have students actually give up their phones for a week or use it less than they would. And they did. They found some data that supports, you know, your phone isn't the greatest for you. But that was a project that we didn't need to delve into, you know, lab materials. They could do that on their own. It was something they were interested in, but it wasn't a hardcore lab. Yeah, that's, I guess you, your your advice was sort of where I pushed the student. I said, I basically said, you have to have something that you're, that you're curious about. Like, it has to be something that you're wondering about. And then once you have that, we need to then sculpt a question. And then we can f- worry about the materials and methods and how do we go about doing that. And some questions, we won't be able to get to the materials and methods. But I said, try to come up with some things that you're curious about. Mm-hmm, and then exactly. and then once we have a few different things that you're curious about, we can start brainstorming possibilities or pathways to explore those topics a little bit more. And you're right, you, like they're not we're not going to we can't run tissue culture in our schools. We can't mm-hmm. do like a lot of these things, but you can do some very we there are a lot of accessible models that you can grow. And, you know, for example, I was talking, you know, she was talking to me about looking at development and, and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, plants, they develop as well. So like, you might be thinking development and in your mind, you're thinking animal development, animal cell development. I was like, but we could also look at plants and plant tissues and, and plants, like plants go through all these stages and they divide and they do all of these things. And, and it may be a much more accessible model for you, if you want to look at how things develop, to look at that and look it into a plant system as opposed to an animal system. And that was something that the kid had never thought about. So I, I sort of gave them homework and said, go find some stuff that you're wondering about and come back to me in a couple of weeks. So, exactly. <laughs> so, so we'll sort of see how this all washes out. But we do not have uh, we do not have a STEM certificate or, you know, really even a, a school size science fair. This is something where, you know, you sort of mentioned a little bit with people going into labs. For me, we have a, a massive equity and access issue in our school. If your mom or dad works in a lab, those are the kids who in a, historically have gone on from our school to go and do science fair. And and we are really trying to make it so that students who don't come from STEM families but are interested, we start to provide them opportunities and pathways to access in. That's awesome. Now, the students who do science fair at your school, they're just doing it on their own. It's not part of your class or anything like that, right? Correct. So a couple of them are doing it through extracurriculars. So we have a couple of different clubs where students go and do some independent work. So we have a uh, an exercise physiology performance lab, uh, which is run by our anatomy teacher who has a whole setup there. And so she has, she's monitored a bunch of kids who went into science fair this year uh, for the first time. And then, as I said, Brian Dempsey runs a summer class, and he uses that as a springboard for students to be able to get in. But no, we do not have it as part of a class. We've talked about maybe making it an extension out of some of our classes, but uh, we haven't lined up our curriculum in such a way that that has really, we've allowed students to do that yet. Oh, cool. That sounds great. Another thing that like helped us get started, and I think we had talked to um, Brian about this at that conference, through the science fair, they have a program. It's called the Curious Minds Initiative. And what they can do is help you kind of get that started. 
in your school science fairs. They have um, grant money for you. And so that's what we did. I talked with our STEAM director and she applied for this grant and they have PD that goes along with it. Um, but it also helps because, you know, sometimes you're running these after school programs and you might not be getting a stipend. So this <laughs> grant can help with teacher stipends or materials. Sometimes it's hard to get materials for the project. So that's what this grant kind of helps get started with materials um, at the middle school and the high school level um, and stipends to do these science fairs. So that's something I can um, share a website with you about that if teachers were interested in applying for a grant to start a science fair at their school. Absolutely. I will put that Curious Minds Initiatives uh, link right in my show notes so people can look at that. All right. So we're going to, when this episode comes out, it's coming out on, you know, May 6th, May 7th. You will have just finished up the Massachusetts High School Science Fair at MIT, and it's a week before the Massachusetts State Middle School, and also the ISEF is yeah i have a um crazy may three weeks next three weeks because i also have i do the region two which is the worcester region um science fair so that's on monday yeah april 29th before i leave to go to mit for three days and come back and then try and get everything ready for the middle school science fair usually the middle school fairs later but there was a um, date issue this year so i'm like you know what let's just go back to back and then it'll all be done i will just be absolutely crazy for the next few weeks. So it's nice having April break right now to get a lot of this stuff done. (laughs) All right. So what are you looking forward to seeing in these upcoming events? Uh, Like what are going to be the, what are the best aspects of being involved with these events Mm -hmm. uh, from your perspective? Yeah, definitely. You know, the best part is seeing the students, how excited they are and also how nervous. Sometimes it's the first time a student has actually talked to a professional. Definitely at the middle school level, these kids are adorable. They're so nervous, but the judges make them feel comfortable. And a lot of times they get great feedback from the judges. And that's what I think I love the most is the interactions between students and judges and the judges offer feedback. I had a student went to the state fair, I think last year, and a judge actually remembered her project and he wrote a nice letter that, you know, he sent to me first so I could send to the student. And it was just a encouraging letter to, you know, keep on. I knew it was your first science fair, but definitely don't give up, you know, keep going on. If you ever need help on a topic, I can help you. So it's great to see the interactions between judges and students and also students talking with other students. You know, they're making friends. I, Rhiannon, who gave that talk at the conference I saw you at, mm-hmm. you know, has a group chat with students from all over the state, you know, talking about the science fair projects they're doing and bouncing ideas off each other. So that's what I think it is, the camaraderie um, between the students. Um, and it's just an exciting day. Yeah, and you, when you have the the groups at the different levels, it I would think that there would be a little bit of a natural sort of competition component um, in this, but it doesn't sound like when I talk to the students, um, when I talk to teachers, it doesn't come across as a super competitive environment. I don't think so. I think everyone's just so excited to be there and sharing their data and their projects, what they found out, you know, what they created. There's some competition involved, obviously, Um, (laughs) but I think we give out about a half a million dollars in prizes at the high school level, just with um, college scholarships are offered. We do patent awards from Fish and Richardson. The lawyers come around and look at the top projects or projects that they think could be deserving of a patent, and they help the students actually go through the process of applying for a patent, which is great. 
I mean, how many students do you know <laughs> now who have a patent? <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's probably growing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and what's also great is we have an educator day for teachers, which I can share the link mm-hmm. for if people wanted to register beforehand. So the educator day kind of gives a behind the scenes for educators to hear the judge overview. Um, they get to go walk the floor while judging's going on to see all the projects, talk with students. And that's a cool thing that teachers can get to do is see the behind the scenes of how the fair works. Yeah, I think that that's, there's a lot of different points of pause. As somebody who doesn't do this, who doesn't work with students on science fair, who does that, I think there's a lot of moments of pause, both for students who are looking to get into it and also teachers who may or may not, you know, may want to help students, but don't really know how to navigate. So, you know, you have a student, they're a freshman, sophomore, they're interested in science, and I want them to, to get involved. Um, I sort of want to talk through this process. I think I have a pretty good handle on it, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, people might not know. So I get a student, they're a freshman, they, they don't really know much. They, they're excited about science. I find out something that they, are, they wonder about. Maybe it's not super complicated. Maybe it has something to do with, you know, maybe how plants grow or how, you know, maybe C. elegans react to some sort of stimuli or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I I get them to engage and there's all these resources on the aspects of the project and the poster and what's required to submit the paperwork. Let's talk sort of through how I would go from a kid who's a freshman, sophomore, maybe through the different levels of the science fairs. I guess my, I would start with either a school or a regional science fair. Is that where I'd probably start? Yep. Exactly. So um, if your school has a school fair, you can do that. Each um, region, I, I'm i heavily involved with region two because that's where I live and mm-hmm. also where um, the school I'm at is in. And then you would go to the regional school, your regional fair. Um, I think what, I'm not sure what region you're in. Um, maybe region four. Region four, yeah, off the top of my head. Um, so then you would go to your regional fair. And um, on our state fair website, it has all the paperwork. The paperwork can be a little overwhelming. And they also have an online program called Cephos, which helps with all the paperwork and filling out the data um, that you need. And your project has to be approved by a safety review committee just to make sure you're following the rules. Obviously, middle school rules are more strict than the high school rules. Um, So the uh, manual helps really describe the rules, you know, what you can and can't do. And then you get your project approved, you work on your project, and then you would go to the regional fair. And at the regional fair, usually it's your top 40 projects on that place will move on to the state fair. But what's great is each school, even if you had a student, say your freshman went, but she didn't win at her regional um, fair, each school can still send two additional projects to the state fair, which is great because now you're going to, you're able to go to the state fair and present. And sometimes those students, even if they didn't win at their regional fair, they're winning at the state fair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all depending upon the judges, the day of the fair, you know, did you, in most fairs, you get some feedback from the judges. So sometimes those students take those comments and really, you know, will fix one part of their project or do a little extra research mm-hmm. um, to add more to their board. And then they'll go to the state fair. So from a timing standpoint, I have, I, I get a kid who comes in and it's the beginning of the school year and they're interested in doing something like that. I have to get my paperwork in by some certain days, but I don't have to have my project done until I get closer. Um, yeah. When do I have to, de- yeah. when do I have to decide that I want to do science fair um, if I want to do it? Uh, I start probably in November. I know some schools start earlier, um, but usually, you know, November 
start to get your idea for your project, and some students are on it way ahead of time, but usually there's a deadline in like December where your projects have to be approved for safety. And so once they're approved, you can start the whole, you know, working on your project. But usually it's like from November till March is when the regional fairs are. Um, and then the state fair is in May. So that's kind of the, it's almost a whole school year, basically, of working. But usually I start October, November with my students. So I go on and I do this great, in, amazing fair and I do this state fair thing and I'm like super proud of my work and I, I maybe I do really well. How how do I take this idea that I started here and get into this, you know, these various, you know, ISEF and these really mm-hmm. big, you know, like Regeneron and those type of fairs? Um, is that usually, that is usually like a year two type project as opposed to a no. first year project? Um, so sometimes, so students can enter prod, like fairs by themselves. I know there's the Google Science Fair. Mm-hmm. So they do that on their own. With ISEF, because I organize all the students who go to ISEF, mm-hmm. that's done um, right after the regional fairs. We sort of hold this, because we have state delegates, but each region also has regional delegates. So each region fair could send a student to ISEF, depending upon funding. So we figure out who the state delegates are and then the regional delegates. So that happens right after the regional fair. Um, We figure out who our delegates are and then they'll go to the state fair. And then a week later they leave um, to go to Phoenix to present at the international fair. So in that I've never been, but I've seen pictures. They say it's, it can be life-changing for a student just the excitement and energy with students from all around the world is amazing. And I think about maybe it was four years ago, a student from Massachusetts, I think he was from one of the Boston schools, won the overall top grand prize, Mm -hmm. which was like amazing. I remember seeing pictures of them hoisting the student up, you know, so excited. And the chaperones are like, hurry up, we have to go catch our flight. (laughs) Um, But that was exciting for Massachusetts. Yeah. And, and so I, I guess that's my misperception of not knowing sort of the, the tiers. So really the, the ISEF and those type of awards, they, they start in that same pathway of, you know, that, that regional science fair mm-hmm. that I started at the beginning of the year. These are not multi-year projects. This is a one-year shot. Yes. And sometimes students can do a continuation of their project and oftentimes they do, um, but they obviously have to make sure it's, you know, different enough. And it's not the same project you're doing, but you can do a continuation project, Mm -hmm. but it is a year project from regional to state and then being going to ISEF. So it's not a multi-year event. Neat. And so, yeah, it's it's a very sort of a, that makes it a little bit more manageable, I think. Uh, Yeah. And then I don't know much about the Regeneron science talent search, Mm -hmm. but those I think might be ones you enter on your own. I'm not totally sure about those. All right. So I will look up some of the other ones and throw them in there. And as I said, for me, as a somebody who does not, you know, I didn't grow up with science fair. I didn't, you know, it's not something that we do. It's not something that we have as a core component of our school. I've literally been indoctrinated over the last year or so, really last two or three years as as my colleague has been building up our capacity to help students. We would get we would get kids who would be like, they would notify us, oh, so-and-so is a finalist in Regeneron. And we're like, okay. Um, <laughs> some, sometimes they were my student. Sometimes they weren't. I've had students who have gone on to these awards, but it literally was a a point of privilege in our school. Like some kids would just do it on their own. They mm-hmm. would usually work through, you know, a family member or a family connections lab. They would design their project that enter on their own. 
that was sort of what they did. And is a, a lot of credit to my colleague who's been working on really democratizing this process, making it so that it's not just the kids who already have the connections who are doing this, but really any kid who has an interest could access that. And then I also know from just knowing the kids, um, I do think we do need to have a little bit of an incentive for some kids who might not view themselves that way to start getting in. And I don't know that we have that yet, okay. but that's some, that's something that we need to work on of getting kids to start down that process to maybe picture themselves as a science fair participant. Mm -hmm. And it is an overwhelming process, you know, once you, you know, have to do all the paperwork and everything like that, but it's definitely worth it in the end. The skills they're learning, you know, the presentation skills or the background research or how do you put together a poster board that's professional looking? Um, These are all skills that, and a lot of times the ones who are in the science fair want to go into a science field and you know that's when you're going to start in college you know working reading the scientific papers and presenting at um, meetings and those skills that they're learning in high school or even middle school if you're doing it um, will help you definitely further in life yeah all right. Well, I think we've I think we've exhausted science fair. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think we're we're good there. All right. So aside from science fair, you know, now that you're officially a first year teacher, apparently, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the in the upcoming years? So, looking forward to I'm looking forward to um, more of the project lead the way classes and um, you know seeing what those are going to be like and um, how I'll be teaching those. Um, I'm also going to be doing a new co-teaching method next year for special with special education. So I think mm-hmm. that'll be definitely a shift I'm a little nervous about, but we'll see what that brings. But just kind of seeing, you know, how science is changing and, you know, with the frameworks, everything like that, just where we'll, where we'll be going. <laughs> Yeah, as I, we, I mentioned on my last episode, episode I was talking to a California teacher, and they're a couple years ahead of us. But like next year, it's it's a whole new set of science standards for us, and a whole new test is coming, and it's very much a black box for us as to what our curriculum looks like. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and you're not you're not like me. You're not an old like <laughs> I, I was in the I was around the last round we did this, so I was on the standard setting committee for the last round of MCAS. So um, I really I have enormous amount of comfort with this content heavy test that we have and how to shepherd kids through. And so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a steep learning curve to make sure that I am up on what this new test is like and how the assessment's going to feel different. And I still feel a little bit lost as to what it's actually going to look like when it rolls out live. I think a lot of people are going to feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll know a lot, a year, a a year and a half from now, we'll know a lot more about this uh, test. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So when you're not in the classroom, what do you like to do? What do you do when you're not teaching and not helping people with science fairs and not (laughs) shepherding people through research? Uh, I have two boys, um, ages five and three, Carter and Will, who keep me incredibly busy. Um, You know, they're totally outdoor kids. So we're, you know, once they get home from school, we're outside playing. And that's what I think I like best about teaching is now I have the summers off with them, which is great because before, you know, I was working every day during the summer. So that's definitely a benefit now, especially with my son starting kindergarten next year. You know, I'll be able to be home 
um, during the summer with him and not have to worry about, you know, figuring out where he's going to go. So I think that's a major benefit for me. But we just love to have fun, you know, running around outside, chasing them on their power wheels and um, just enjoying everything. Yeah, it, it is. It is nice to have that parallel schedule. I guess that's the best way I describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the the parallel schedule with your kids, and then when they get older, they can kind of do their own thing. So um, yes, yeah. I'm like, why didn't I go into this earlier? You know, without <laughs> kids having the summers off. <laughs> yeah. Well, when what I found is that before I, you know, well before I started teaching. I didn't really know about the whole the summer thing. And then I started teaching and then I was like, oh, during the summers, I need to do something. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would I would work in the summer. And then when the kids came along, you know, I would then start, I would just do my curriculum work at a, like a leisurely pace during the summer, but balancing it with that family time. Exactly. Um, and, and that was there. And now that they're older, what I do is, and we were just do planning this just the other day, like, so my oldest is 16 and my youngest will be 12 this summer. And so my oldest is actually going to be a counselor in training at the camp where my youngest is going to go for a couple of weeks. And so they go to camp for a couple of weeks. Um, and that's when I do my professional development weeks away. So if I want to sign up for those week long workshops, I, mm-hmm. I line them up to go to camp <laughs> for, for those. What are um, some of the professional development workshops that you do? So yeah, I've done a lot of different things. Um, this year, it's it's still a little bit flex, but I've done I've worked with the Amgen Biotech Experience Group out of out of Cambridge, out of Harvard, and they're currently working on something called Lab Exchange, which is a a curriculum development. So I've been a, a curriculum creator for them. Um, I was last summer, and I've applied to do that again this summer. Um, haven't quite got our notices yet about which if I'm accepted into one or both of the weeks that they're doing that. And then I'm also hoping to do the Tiny Earth Initiative. And so Tiny Earth is a an antibiotics search program, um, and they're running a program this summer at UConn where they're using the summer partner instructors training at UConn in the middle of July. So basically, this is a, it's a biotech-heavy and micro-heavy program where they train teachers to go to UConn and work out how to do all the labs and students collect samples, and then you basically look for antibiotics in nature. And so it's an initiative I've been interested in um, that... Uh, fellow that Dave Mangus from Brockton had introduced me to. And so I'm hoping to do that this summer. That sounds awesome. That's how I think I remember seeing like pictures from Twitter last summer of all the cool stuff that you were doing. (laughs) And I think that's how I bumped into or found um, Lisa Sequeira, who's at, um, I think, Boylston or West Boylston High School. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, I remember Lisa from the AP Bio meetings. And I think in also one of the pictures, I saw um, an old co-worker when I worked at UMass and he's now a teacher he did the whole postdoc thing but decided to go into teaching and I'm like oh my god that's James who I used to work with when I was in the worm lab which is so it's a very tiny small world when I you know saw those pictures yeah well and so last summer I went to um, I also went to Milwaukee to the Milwaukee School of Engineering Um, they have a the 3D molecular design uh, program there. So they do a, it's called modeling the molecular world workshop because they have a whole bunch of kits and stuff like that. And we had bought a few at school and I always felt like I was kind of using them. Okay. But, um, people had told me, I've known several teachers from around the country who had said, Oh yeah, if you have the opportunity to go to Milwaukee and go through their week training, definitely do that. Um, so last summer I went and did that. Um, and then I also do the AP read in Kansas city in June. So yeah, I, it's a, it's a running joke. 
I, I travel a little bit more than, than the average, but I tend to try to do like, so the read is phenomenal from an AP standpoint and it's sort of a unique experience, but I try to do a couple of other weeks. Um, I have found that doing more than two things in the summer tends to end up stretching me too much and it's too much for me to actually incorporate those things into my curriculum. So what I try to do is I try to pick one or two things that I do during the summer. And then the rest of the time is just actual curriculum work where um, I take ideas that I've pulled and said, oh yeah, we really want to run this initiative next year. Um, and then I really just dive deep and spend a few weeks just doing that. Um, and you know, when your kids get old enough that they don't need constant supervision, um, <laughs> you can, uh, yeah, I can sort when you're of. You're at that constant supervision. So <laughs> yeah, I can, I can, I totally remember those days. And so I, as I said, I sort of checked out of summer PD for about 10 years where I didn't do a whole lot until like they were both old enough to go off and do things together. And then I I would pick like one or two things and now it's you know now it's it's very easy to say what do you guys want to do this summer and and yeah we send them off and <laughs> it, <laughs> i'll get there eventually <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, uh, it is fun and as i said you know i i probably travel a little bit more than average to to go do some of these things but i i will say it, it gets it is easy to fill your summer i actually just saw something in my email box that was asking me about another week uh at mit once you start getting into these, you said it's a small world. Don Pinkerton often says that he thinks there's only 30 biology teachers in the state of Massachusetts because every workshop he goes to, it's the same 30 of us that are at every workshop. But once you get into these networks and you get on these lists, like when people run things, they send you them and say, oh, are you interested in coming to do this thing? And and, and oftentimes I am. Um, so, uh, But I do, I do think you have to get good at saying no because it, as I said, I want to say it was like four or five summers ago I went and did and I did like four things or five things and like I just spent like like four or five weeks at different workshops and I got done and I was like overwhelmed like it was like why did I go to all these things I can't incorporate all of this stuff and so a couple of the weeks just sort of I was like well I'm just gonna sort of let those ideas sort of melt away and pick these two ideas that I really like and I'll incorporate those um, because as frenetic as I tend to be and I tend to be a little bit more ambitious in terms of change and curriculum developments, that sort of thing. There are reasonable, there are reasonable limitations on rolling out new things with your students and then meaningfully evaluate, evaluating them as you do them. So yeah. Um, it's easy to try to do too much. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> so. All right. So before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? No, you know, I did put in um, kind of my notes, you know, I've always been fascinated um, by you and Brian's like approach to teaching AP bio, because um, mm -hmm. you do a ton of labs in it. But like, do you feel you're able to cover all the curriculum? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so there's a couple of things about the the word. And as, as I saw your question, I was thinking, I was thinking of some several of my friends who say we don't cover curriculum, we uncover curriculum. Like that's sort of a line uh, that several people I know. So there's a few things about it. Um, definitely, there's a point of privilege. Like, I, you know, I teach at a very good school, and uh, we vertically team the classes, which means uh, Brian and I are two of the honors biology teachers, and we're the two AP teachers. So we know the foundation that all the students get in year one biology. So we have a really good understanding of the foundation curriculum-wise that the kids come in. And even the kids who don't come in from honors bio, we know the, the level below that that students have taken. So our students who come into AP Biology come with a really solid foundation, and we 
know what their basis is that comes in. So from a, a content standpoint, I am not super concerned about like their understanding of content. And then beyond that, the AP just to me is just not about content. It's, it's really about those science practices and the science skills. When they look at a complicated graph, when they read a background piece of information, can they make connections? And certainly they absolutely need to know some content to do that, but really they need to be able to think like a scientist in order to answer those questions. And so for me, the only way to think like a scientist is to act as a scientist. And so what we have really worked on. Um, and I, I would say, you know, um, for people who know Brian and I, Brian and I are really very, very different people. Like we, we come at curriculum from remarkably different perspectives. Um, and in fact, the first couple of years that we taught together, like it was more or less like me yelling at him, like, why are you doing this? Like, like he kind of drove me crazy and, uh, he still does from time to time, but in a, like a very, like Brian and I have such a good relationship for as we work together for, you know, now almost 20 years together, but we're like, you know, I often joke that the the analogy I often use with us is that like we're Darwin and Huxley, like he is the big idea guy and I'm the bulldog. Like, like if you want to come up with a brilliant, like giant pie in the sky idea, something that's like really creative and clever, Brian is awesome at that. If you want to actually get it done, I am the person that you want. And I am very detail oriented and focused and that sort of thing. And working with him has helped me become a much more creative, big idea thinker. And I think working with me has allowed him to become much more ability, have a much greater ability at honing in on details because we have very different strengths and we've learned to like, when I approach something, I often think of like, well, how is, what's Brian's concern going to be about this or how, what are his questions? And similarly, he thinks about my concerns because we, we do the same work. We, you, we roll the same material out in our classroom. And so we are trying to be considerate of one another. But back to your original question, um, I, I think we do share the idea that science teaches science. And so we really do in AP uh, have moved to a model where if something is not something that you can do a baseline lab where students can learn a basic procedure and collect some initial data and learn some basic data analysis and then brainstorm questions about that phenomena or topic and then design their own investigation, then it's not really a very worthwhile lab for us. And so all of our labs that we do in AP or nearly all the labs we do in AP, we try to follow that model of here's a basic procedure, run through this, collect some data. All right, let's talk to you guys about how to do some data analysis on that. Now I want you to brainstorm some questions. I want you to do a literature search about this topic. I want you to hone in as a group down to a single question. I want you to refine your materials and methods to see if you can change the material methods to answer that question collect some new, you know, come up with a hypothesis. What do you think is going to happen? Why do you think that's going to happen? Collect some data, analyze some data, draw some conclusions. All right. Now, what would be the next lab that you would do? Propose that. And that that's sort of the model we use to, to open up various phenomena. And that's awesome because that's exactly what you do when you're working in a research lab, you know, start one lab, mm -hmm. you know, and then figure out what's the next step going to be to get more research. So I love that. That's how you do it. Yeah. And, and there's a few things we'd like to do that we haven't quite pulled off. I think um, one of our goals has also been, and this is again, another one of Brian's brain ideas is to like pull out the idea of using model organisms. And in some of them, I think we do a really nice job where we have model systems of 
you know, uh, yeast, and mm-hmm. we're using as our bacteria right now, B. subtilis, and we're using C. elegans, and we're using Drosophila, and we're using, I think, Arabidopsis, and then we currently use the mouse, although I've been trying to get the mouse out of our system because you can't really do anything with vertebrates in Massachusetts. But we've tried to also teach through the lens of using model organisms because so much of the literature that's out there uses model systems. Exactly. That's what the labs are are like. I was so excited when our AP class did a C. elegans lab last year. I was like, oh, I know all about these. (laughs) So I was able to help them with that. Yeah. And so we've, and, and some reason there's great um, resources out there. So for example, for Arabidopsis, Ohio state has an Arabidopsis outreach lab and they have free educational kits that they'll send you. So if you want to look at Arabidopsis, um, you can get, you know, seeds um, and like decent numbers of seeds for free. If you use the Ohio state outreach. Oh, awesome. Uh, I'll have to pass that along to my AP bio teacher. Yeah. And then, and then similar to what you were saying before, um, we have connections with a lot of labs. So for example, with fruit flies, like uh, both Brian and I have worked in Neil Silverman's fruit fly lab um, during various fellowships at UMass, uh, at UMass Medical uh, School. And, and Neil lives in Boxborough and his kids have gone through our school and you know, like we know him. So if I, if I'm working on something and I have an idea about fruit flies and, and I need a fly stock, that may not be something that can you know cheaply and easily be gotten. I can say, hey Neil, is there any chance you could get us a vial of flies so that I can flip, you know, I, and we'll grow them up. Um, and so we've done a couple of projects where we've reached out to either a C. elegans lab or um, there's a WPI lab that I've connected with where we've been looking at B. subtilis and we've been looking at biofilms. And so I just you know send an email into my my colleague uh, you know colleagues who work you know the graduate students who are working in the in the lab and say can you plate me out a a plate of you know three different biofilm mutants and a wild type and they're like sure. And so. Yeah, so we've made some connections and we've done that. And I think, you know, it's 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 been a little slower than I would like. Um, I would like to have a better foundational set of labs and phenomena to go with what we teach. But it's it's a work in progress. And I think we agree on it, um, that this is something that we want to do. And we're continuously moving in the right direction. But it's been, uh, you know, there's definitely parts where, like, I sit around and I think, all right, what do I really want to do in here? What is the missing piece? What is the curriculum piece? And so, for example, I could do uh, behavior labs. Like I could do, like I could do a mouse behavior lab. I can do a C. elegans behavior lab. I can do a fruit fly behavior lab. I could do behavior labs all year long. But I really only want to do one behavior lab. But I don't have great labs for some of the other things that we talk about. And so, trying to develop modules and systems that use all of the different models that we want to use and open up all the other curriculum is sometimes a slow process. And that's, I think, fundamentally where, like, that is where you need a couple of different brains working at the problem and you need a lot of time and you need a little patience. And so um, I feel like we're eventually going to get there, but uh, that's sort of where we are in the middle of the process of of sort of meeting our goals from a curriculum standpoint of having the science open up the content as opposed to trying to cover a bunch of concepts. Um, we just really don't think in terms of those. We think in terms of sort of big, interesting questions, labs that support the pursuit of those, and then yeah, and that's sort of the approach that we're looking at. Very cool. I love it. So, 
So yeah, and I would say even next year, um, as they're changing the AP again, we're I think by next year we're gonna be not even in what would be recognizable units anymore. We're we've moved to uh, we're moving towards a storylining methodology of teaching AP where we start with like a big question and like an article or a resource, and then we really just explore the topic from like you know what I've been working on right now. You know I, I, we're looking at. Um, you know, what could be the next outbreak? That's the module that we're working in right now. And so we started with some resources about, you know, the HIV outbreak. And we looked through some hypotheses about like what was going on with T cells. And we pulled a case study from University of Buffalo. And then we looked at the Ebola outbreak as sort of a modern outbreak. And we're hitting a lot of concepts of both the immune system and some stuff about, you know, ecology and some stuff about bacteria and stuff about viruses. And we're hitting all of these content concepts and a lot of evolution concepts in there. We're not really teaching a unit on like anything specific. We're talking about a broad challenge that scientists address, and we're trying to open up many areas of curriculum as we discuss that, um, as opposed to having like, say, a cells unit or an ecology unit. We're having sort of big questions and storylining ideas. Um, and our goal is, I think, for next year to have eight of those. And we've been playing around with them this year, and we still have quite a bit of work to get to those eight storylines, but we're, we're close. <laughs> So, That'll be interesting to yeah. see. Yeah, I don't know how to I don't know how to communicate this out to the world, but we're gonna and that's that'll be the next piece. How do we communicate out these <laughs> these projects that we're working on so that There's other people can bio network bringing it back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's it is a little abstract though, so uh, I definitely need to come. Uh, I need to pull in some people who are some nice concrete people who are outside to get us extra eyes and and look at those things. But I have a I have a network of some people to ask <laughs> ask for some feedback. All right, so uh, we have reached picks of the episode. All right, Karen, what is your pick of the episode? So I picked um, Meet Katie Bauman. Um, I'm sure this is kind of maybe last week's news, but um, she was the you know the MIT grad student who mm-hmm. um, discovered that black hole. But what's neat about her from some articles I read was I heard she was involved in science fair. She did go to the international science fair, you know, back way back in the day. But I think it's also neat, even though it was very heavily focused on her, but there was hundreds of people behind her, you know, trying to figure out this algorithm. And, um, and it also happened, you know, they figured out in our backyard in Massachusetts, which I thought was a great story. Yeah. So this is a, it's about the 29 year old woman behind the first photo of the black hole. Uh, yeah, she's been getting some good press, and um, yeah, that icon. I think it's what will now be an iconic photo of her, like expression of just wonder in front of the computer when the that image was made available. That sort of picture of her excitement about exactly. how this algorithm work. Yeah, all right, that's a very cool one, and yeah, I think that that's as they're they're, they're working on. There's going to be another picture that comes out soon or they may be soon uh, of the other because there were two black holes they were working on at the same time. So there will be a second photo. So this is going to have a, this is going to have another bump that comes out uh, sometime later on as well. All right. Uh, So for me, um, I picked a editorial um, that was in science uh, again, early in April calling for the reverse of the global vaccine descent. Um, And it's an article by um, Heidi Larson and William Schultz about 
what's been going on with the dissent about vaccines. And uh, there's been so many stories about, uh, you know, the measles outbreaks in the United States and really how in the United States where we had, I think it was in 2000, they had said measles had been eradicated from the United States. But at this point now, uh, because of waning vaccinations and the fact that it hasn't been eradicated globally and we've had measles reintroduced into the United States multiple times, Uh our vaccination levels have dropped too low. And now we have measles uh, really, really at a, a, a dangerous level for people who are young children or immunocompromised in here. And I thought it was an interesting um, idea because they actually brought up the fact that um, anti-vaccination is not a new idea, that there were 18th century London anti-vaccination pamphlets that were put out, and that this is not the first time human societies have had to argue against people who are arguing that somehow vaccines were unnatural or harmful, but really talking about the fact that we need to, as a, a, a scientific community, really reinvest in the idea that, you know, vac- vaccination and herd immunity are a public good. Um, so I, I thought it was a, an interesting an interesting historical perspective. Um, and it's also, you know, a nice calm and measured yes. <laughs> science article, awesome. which I, I, I like. I, I could have found you like 10 articles that are like screaming about people who are not vaccinating. Um, and I think it's just a, it was a, a little bit more of a calm, measured article about how we need to reinvest in the idea of vaccination and how we as scientists and scientific communicators need to uh, get people to re-engage in the, in the practice of vaccination as a public good. Yeah, actually, I'm taking a look at it now. It looks like a great article. Yeah. So, um, and I also, I don't know if you uh, have seen uh, the Sean Carroll book, The, the Story of Life, I haven't. His, no. Yeah, it's his, his new book, and it's basically uh, stories about like major scientific discoveries. Um, it's it's about two hundred fifty pages. Uh, I just I just read it over this vacation, and one of his chapters is all about the the Wakefield original article about anti-vaccination movement, the Andrew Wakefield Lancet article. And he received like $750,000 from a law firm who was looking to sue vaccine manufacturers. And he, he was basically on the payroll of a, uh, of a group that was like planning on suing vaccine, the vaccine manufacturers and his co-authors were unaware of that. And so not only did he, hand pick and push people who had symptoms that probably weren't even autism into this study again without his co-author's knowledge um, he was profiting from this story and this controversy um, because of his position and affiliation with a law firm um, and that's why he lost his license. He didn't lose his license because he was just railing against vaccines and he was fighting the system. He did, un, you know, he was flat out violating codes of ethics and what good research is. It was from bad scientific practice, not just from bucking the system. And he has turned the fact that he was disbarred as sort of a badge of courage, like, oh, I lost my medical license because I, you know, was just fighting against the system. It was not. He <laughs> he engaged in he engaged in fraud. Wow. And and the fact that Andrew Wakefield has not been a completely debunked person is uh, it, it's baffling to me. It's baffling that people that it's not as well known as um, as it should be. Uh, oh, so. I'll have to check it out. Summer reading. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, it, yeah, it was on my reading list for for several months. So I was happy to finally get to that. 
All right. Well, Karen, thank you for joining me. This is a great conversation. I feel like I learned so much about science fairs and how to help kids yeah. <laughs> navigate uh-huh. navigate through that. So I, I super appreciate that. All right. Let me give credits for my show. You can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Um, you can also support the work I'm doing here. If you go to patreon.com slash lots, Patreon's got an er- get an early release of episodes, usually about four or five days before a uh, wide release. Um, and I so appreciate their work. They help uh, offset some of the costs of maintaining a website and uh, putting out media on media servers and that sort of thing. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. I post show notes both on my Patreon page and on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And you can again follow Karen at Mrs. LeBeau SH. Um, and you can, I will put her Twitter handle in my show notes as well. So you can follow any of us and see what's going on in Twitter. All right. So thank you again for joining me and I will talk to everybody. Soon. Thank you so much. I loved it. It was so much fun. 